to me, what makes a retreat different than a workshop is that you really activate the archetype of the retreat. You separate people from ordinary space, time, concerns, media, um, being online, and you enter into liminal space. And this is the place where you recharge, you create, you investigate, you connect with yourself and others. And then you consciously bring them back at the end. Every time I go to Glacier National Park, I can feel myself expand. I take up more space, I dream bigger, I breathe more deeply. I've had breakthrough ideas about who I am, what I do, and how I want to run my business, winding up and down the going to the sun road. I've seen glimpses of my full potential hiking through the woods or up above the tree line. So when I saw a new hotel go up in my favorite town outside the park, it was an easy decision to bring a group of small business owners there for a retreat. What wasn't so easy was figuring out exactly how to do that. Now, luckily, I had hired a fabulous event planner, Lauren Caselli, who you'll hear an interview with soon. But I wish I had had today's conversation first. You're listening to What Works, the show that takes you behind the scenes of how small businesses really work and deep dives on the who, what, how, and when with entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. Today, my guest is Jennifer Loudon. She's been running retreats for about 20 years now, so she's figured out a thing or two about how they work both logistically and business-wise. Jen hosts multiple writing retreats every year, in addition to supporting writers through her community, The Writer's Oasis. Plus, she's the author of six books with over 1 million copies in print. Jen and I chat about the role of retreats in her business, how far in advance she starts planning, what's working for her right now to sell her retreats, and how she structures each event for both her participants and herself. Now, let's find out what works for Jennifer Loudon. Jen Loudon, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. <laughs> well, like I said, um, while we were just chatting, I'm really excited about this conversation. And I really feel like this is a conversation that I would have loved to have with you years ago. Um, and I think that it's something that is going to be really valuable for a lot of people as we look at what all of our options are as small business owners. It's not just an online course economy. There are so many opportunities, so many different ways that we can create value for people. And I think that in-person retreats are a phenomenal way to do that. So to kind of kick things off, can you tell us about the very first retreat you ever hosted? Yeah. So I published a book in the, I think 98, I always forget the names. I mean, the dates of all my books, but, and it was called the woman's retreat book. It still is called the woman's retreat book. And it was not about how to lead retreats. It was about how to create one for yourself or a group of peers. And um, that book got a lot of attention. And the first official retreat that I was asked to, and I've been leading workshops, but I really feel those are different than retreats. It was at Omega, the adult education center um, in Rhinebeck, New York. And it was, a, it was, they wanted me to do something based on the book. And this is how silly or creative or uh, innovative, I guess is the good word for it. I can be, it just flummoxed me. I was like, what? What? Oh my God. Right. That's book that I wrote actually could be something I'd lead for other people. <laughs> it just didn't occur to me. Oh, that happens to me a lot. So that was the first one. And that was probably maybe the year the book came out or the year after. So probably like, let's say 98, 99. Awesome. What did that first retreat entail? Like, what did you do? How many people were there? What did it look like? Oh, gosh. Um, I think there was about 15 or 20 women. And what it entailed was me freaking out, feeling like a complete 
imposter, having someone in the group come to me about something that wasn't working for her and going to my little cabin afterwards and just thinking, that's it. I'm not going back in the room. I'm not doing this. This is impossible. I cannot do this. And this is really, really important because this became a theme for me in so much of my early, probably like first 15 years of teaching and leading. I was often the youngest person in the room. And I really didn't trust my own exercises and experience and ideas. And what was great was I think it was that trip. It might be the next time I went back to Omega. The wonderful Elizabeth Lester, one of the co-founders of Omega, and now very well known for her, her wonderful work, including her book, Broken Open, befriended me. And she and I, and I kind of I went to her and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just freaking out. I can't do this. And she looked at me. And this is a woman. I think she's 10, 15 years older than I am, who had founded this place. She had taught so many workshops and retreats. And she goes, oh yeah, I feel that way a lot too. And that was this huge moment for me because you've got to remember y'all, it was back in the late nineties. There was no internet going on. There was no mentoring. There was no, as you've been talking about lately, uh, the advice culture, right? I was like making this stuff up. And I was, I had done all this research for the book. I knew all of these principles of what made a retreat, what women needed, how to sort of tap into this archetype, but I, archetype, but I wasn't trusting it yet. So that, that was really the lesson of that first retreat. It took me a long time to get into my bones. And now I can say all these years later that although I laugh at the kind of craziness that I've become um, a master at doing something that's so kind of strange and arcane, you know, why couldn't it have been a master at say like, you know, investing? <laughs> um, I'm really proud of how over years and years of experience, I've layered on all the pieces that I feel are retreat needs um, for women, especially creative women to really get what they need. Mm, well, I want to dive into that um, in a little bit, but first I want to look at the business side of things. Um, what role do retreats play in your business today? How does that fit into sort of your overall business model and the rest of what you offer? Yeah. So there, um, I take in about, I think, 200, 230,000 gross from them and keep up maybe a little less than 50% of that. So it's a real important important part. I have four legs in my business and that would be one. I've been a little cavalier about how easy it is to fill my retreats because they tended to, to be like, we have, we have a, I have a good email list. They would pretty much sell themselves. But last year we expanded, we added more retreats and we just barely filled them all, right? It took some more effort and that's happening again this year. So we're rethinking for um, 2020, um, we're going to remodel things a little bit. We're going to probably offer less and raise the price. And I've always been pretty cost conscious. I've always been someone who wants to, I mean, not that my retreats are cheap, but there there's people who offer the same thing for twice as much money. And it makes me really uncomfortable, but I'm also aware that maybe I'm underpricing myself a little bit and that's causing some of the um, needing to market more. And what I've done is not have to market much. So that that income has been, I don't want to say effortless, but it's got a lot of systems around it. So it hasn't needed to take up a lot of bandwidth. And this year it's taking up some more bandwidth and that makes me a little like scratchy, itchy. <laughs> yeah, I can completely relate to that. Because <laughs> you're like, you have the whole plan for the year, right? And you're like, oh, wait, we didn't leave any room. Right. To fill, there's four spots left in April and I think five spots left in July. And usually we would have a wait list by now for everything. Now, the other retreats are sold out with a wait list, but, you know, and it's just 
also maybe retooling what I offer next year. I think I'm getting more people who want to be more at the smaller group expert getting towards being published level and less at the beginning. I just don't even know where to start level, which is where most of my retreats have been. Gotcha. Okay. So we're going to get into the marketing and selling of things too, because I want to know how you end up with a wait list so far in advance and when you go about selling, how far in advance you go about selling. But tell us what else you're offering right now and, and kind of the relationship between the other things that you offer and the retreats. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'm bad at relationships. I'm a real silo person. So I try to I try to empower my team to be like, please help me keep looking for places to create these really obvious connections for people. I also have this real kind of Calvinistic side of me that's like, well, you bought this one thing for me. Why would you want to buy anything else? I don't want to take all your money. Um, and you know, that's silly because if you're offering something and people really like it, they usually want more. So I'm working on that from a sort of mindset planning level. But the other things I have going on is I have an ongoing, really cool membership, uh, offer. It's called the writer's oasis. It's for writers and creative women to make more of what they want. And I make a fresh audio for that every Friday, which I love doing. 30 to 45 minutes. And then we have a live call with a guest every month. You're going to be my guest this year. And yeah. And then, um, and then I create some extra writing practices for the people who think of themselves as a writer with a capital W, but about a half our population doesn't, they think of themselves as some kind of creative who needs help planning, staying focused, going back to their work, recharging, being inspired. Um, and so that's, that's ongoing and we are doing a launch for that at the end of this month and we'll do another launch in the fall. And I have about, I average between 500, between 500 and 650 members in that we're doing better with our retention. Then my second thing is, well, the retreats. Then the third thing is a writer's mastermind, um, small group, which I really didn't, I, I did for the first time last year worked out some of the kinks and I'll be offering it, um, in starting in February, uh, some invitations, a little small bit of launch for that. That'll be, um, more, much more higher end, but still very reasonably priced, <laughs> she said. And then the last thing I do is, um, I'll do a little, what is the last thing I do? Is there, Oh, we're going to do get scary shit done, which is my online course in the fall. Cool. That's the plan. And then I'm writing a new book. So all of that is setting us up for a launch. And it's, I'm going to actually self-publish my book in 2020. Beautiful. Well, I'll be looking forward to that. But let's get back to retreats now. Can you walk us through the planning process that you use to plan a retreat, kind of from choosing a location to getting on the plane to making sure, you know, there's water and food in the refrigerator. Yeah. So that's so interesting. I've been thinking about that question because you sent it to me ahead of time. And I think what's worked is putting those pieces in place year by year and then trying to duplicate them. So one of the first things I learned was going to a new place every year creates a ton of extra work and really cuts into the profits. So I've tried to restrict myself from doing that. The other thing I think it does is going back to the same place is it creates an ongoing story for my people who see the retreats, but this year is not the year. And they start to put it on what they call their bucket list, right? And the place gets an association with it. That said, I do try to choose places 
And I used to like resent this because I thought it should be all about me and what I taught. But place is huge for people. So lean on the place, create, find a place that really appeals to people, right? Um, and, and I try for accessibility. So the locations I use right now are a friend's compound in Sayulita, Mexico. It's pretty easy to get to. You fly into Puerto Vallarta. Second one I go to three times a year, which I can drive to, is Taos, New Mexico. Not super easy for some people to get to, so a minus on that. But I've been going there for this year will be my 18th year. So I've got so much in place, and it saves so much time and energy. I know the staff. I know the cook. I know they're going to take care of the dietary restrictions. And then the the last place is my house. <laughs> Which wow. Soup, nobody stays here, right? That would be weird. And there's no room for uh, 12 people, but it's really easy to set up the space to know what to expect. And the actually only problem with that has been finding a great caterer. Um, so I, I find the best thing about systems is to find is is to, is to find a place. And I've gone to places that have been awful, 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 awful. And you really have to scout it out yourself ahead of time. You cannot rely on other people because other people don't have the same requirements that you do. So unless you're really going to grill them, you may make a big mistake. And I did that a couple of times. And so I don't recommend that. Yeah. Having hosted a retreat in the same place twice now, I can totally vouch for how much time that saves you. Even just in the second year, it was so much easier, you know, knowing where everything was, having uh, relationships at the location. Um, It was, yeah, such a great uh, insight there. Um, I love what you said about having to scout things out ahead of time because no one has the same list of requirements that you have. What are some of the things that you personally are looking for in a house, in a resort, in a caterer, in a whatever it is? What Maybe what are some of the things that are unusual that you're looking for, um, but that are really important to you? So good food, good food that's delicious, but pretty clean. Um, that really helps people feel nourished, hugely important. I teach women. Women are usually the nurturers and the cookers, the cookers, the chefs, the whatever. And so for them to be fed really good food, I mean, we have sugar, we don't have alcohol. I like to have a pretty sober environment because people get very open and tender. And I don't want them to say something to themselves or each other when they're inebriated, but they can totally have wine or whatever in their rooms if they want. Second thing is, is I really want a place that has a connection to nature. Um, So Taos, you cannot actually walk out on the Pueblo land. It's closed to us, but you can walk around it and out to one part of it. But you're surrounded by this incredible open space and mountains. Um, So it's that sense of returning to some sense of natural rhythm. I don't in general want to go to a place where other groups are. I am going to go to a place where there'll be a second group in 2020 and in Sonoma. But in general, I found that to be, it's not a big, it's not like a breaking point for me, but I love the sense that we have the whole run of a place that we're, it's just us. Um, Because it feels like I can control the environment and the space and the container. The container of the retreat is a big part of what I've learned to create and maintain and almost enforce for people. Um, And then I would say that a big thing is women really like a private room. And so sometimes 
that's an issue, finding a place where you can have enough private rooms. And so in 2020, this, the California place, everyone's going to have a double. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> there are <laughs> private rooms. Um, in house, it's, it's difficult because the rooms are all really different. And so it, it, trying to find the best place we found actually was this place in upstate New York. And it was a former um, like monastery. So the rooms were small and plain and everybody could have a single and they were all the same. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to go down the hall to share the bath and that freaks some people out. So you never know. You're just trying to think of some of the different things that your, your participants are going to be triggered by or that are going to become a, a reason for them not to sign up. I do want to add one thing, which is this took us forever to figure out. So we just figured it out this year. You have to fill out an application to come to one of my events one of my retreats. And we just figured out that in that application, we've been asked them if they had any food restrictions on what they were and have them upload a picture for an exercise that we do instead of tracking them down later. This was so obvious. It is embarrassing to share with you, but it is going to save us probably, my staff, probably three or four hours of time. Um, so, you know, maybe more than that. Yeah. Uh, I was very lucky to hire an event planner who uh, told me to do that for the first retreat that I ever hosted um, because I have a lot of experience with also, like you said, tracking people down and trying to figure things out after the fact. And just to have that information up front is wonderful. It's just wonderful. I'm really excited <laughs> about it. I just, and I can't believe I came up with that idea all on my own. <laughs> I love it. What Works is brought to you by Gusto. Now that you've had time to think about what you want from your business in 2019, it's time to take action. If hiring is on your list, you might be feeling intimidated by the paperwork, the red tape, and the legal hoops you need to jump through. I know I was two years ago when I hired my first full-time employee. Then I found Gusto. Gusto makes it easy. We use Gusto to automatically file and pay our payroll taxes, manage time off, and offer benefits. Plus, listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. So if you're ready to grow your team in 2019, now's the time to start. Try a demo and test it out at gusto.com slash what works. That's gusto.com slash what works. What works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks powers brands and businesses that bring people together. When I started my small business over 10 years ago, the people I brought together had to jump from platform to platform to interact, learn, and connect. We had one app for online courses, another for events, another for our content, and still another to talk together as a community. None of these apps talked to each other, of course, and most were a disaster on a phone or tablet. And on top of that, I had to pay for each one separately. Then we found Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks let us bring our website, content, courses, community, and events together all in one place. Plus, it made it easy to centralize fees and accept payments. Plus, Mighty Networks makes everything we create easy to access on mobile with our own app. Make 2019 the year you streamline the way you do business and build real relationships at the same time. Get started with Mighty Networks free of charge by visiting MightyNetworks.com. Mighty Networks is the easiest way to take your business to the next level. Um, okay, so you mentioned you know you're, where you're going someplace in 2020 already. How far in advance do you start planning for a retreat? Oh, at least a year, if not two. Um, wow. Places that are popular um, are hard to get into. I'll give you an example. So when I started going to the location in Taos, they were, they were just... They were no, they hardly booked anybody. 
But as those retreats became more popular, people, of course, came to them who also teach things. And now I was told last year that I could be killed for my dates. <laughs> Jokingly. Um, so, yeah, so I plan way in advance. We have not planned entirely 2020 yet, and we need to do that in the next few weeks. We'll probably do it in February. Amazing. Okay. Uh, Got it. All right. So then what actually happens at your retreat? Can you kind of run us down what a typical uh, schedule agenda looks like for you? Yeah. So, so I'll give you one for sort of what I call my classic writer's retreat. And that is that um, everybody, there's an arrival time. And during that arrival time, there's an optional yoga class. I have yoga offered uh, every single afternoon. And I, I offer, um, dance yourself awake every single morning, both optional. So people arrive, they, I am not present. There is a staff to greet them. They have a schedule waiting for them. They know they're told where the yoga is. They're taken to their room, all that kind of stuff. And then at six o'clock, we all gather for a uncocktail hour <laughs> with snacks in the living room. And I greet people and I you know, take a moment to just make them you know, sort of extend love to them. I think the, the most important ingredient of my retreats is really offering a tremendous amount of love and safety to people. So I start to establish that vibe right there. We go into dinner. I give an announcement during dinner. Then we go to the classroom. I'm already inside. And um, they enter in silence. There's candles lit, there's music playing. And then I lead them through a welcoming uh, that usually goes about an hour and a half, um, includes going over the directions, which I've also given them, not directions, but you know, outline of what's going to happen. They have their schedule. They also have an outline of that written out so they can read it over, give them some homework for the next morning, a little tiny bit of homework, really get them into sacred space. To me, what makes a retreat different than a workshop is that you really activate the archetype of the retreat. You separate people from ordinary space, time, concerns, media, um, being online, and you enter into liminal space. And this is the place where you recharge, you create, you investigate, you connect with yourself and others. And then you consciously bring them back at the end. So once we're in liminal space, I help keep reminding them, how do you stay there? Are you starting to get on your devices? Are you, you know, we do check-ins about this a couple times a day in different ways. How are you working with your mind? Meditation is part of what we do. Um, really helping people notice that their thoughts about how their writing is going or how it should be going or how it should sound are really just that, their thoughts. They don't have to mean anything. We don't have to push them away. We don't have to listen to them. Every morning we meet with small groups um, because those retreats are a little bit bigger and the introverts in them are like, holy shit, 24, 28 people. I can't do that. So they get into groups of four. They meet with once and a couple of times, twice a day. I give them very specific check-ins. I run the thing like <laughs> very precisely because what happens with a group of women is that everybody wants to start talking. And once after a couple of days go by, they're all best friends. And so I have to keep like the energy contained or um, it'll run away from, from them. And they'll get into giving each other advice and they'll give into like taking care of everybody else instead of staying focused on themselves, which is the deepest work of the retreat. Um, we do some writing warm-ups. They go off to write in silence. That amount of writing time extends every day, gets longer and longer. Again, these are sort of for beginners, people who are returning to writing, and they might be scared of a big amount of writing time. So extend it, make it safer every day. Um, we have lunch that can be in silence or community. Then there's a, an optional afternoon craft class with me. So I teach a class on the inner critic. I teach a class on how to 
um, structure your work, um, things like that. There's writers of all kinds and subjects, so it's always a little bit of a stretch for me. Then we um, have yoga, and then in the after, in the evening after dinner, we have a circle, and I set some. I do a little bit of teaching. We set some kind of in um, sort of focus for that, and we each go around and have a minute, a minute and a half to check in, and that's where I make sure every, how everybody's doing as a whole. Um, during writing time, I'm usually available. If somebody gets stuck, I sit in a certain place and they'll come by and I'll give them a little coaching and get them unstuck. And just knowing I'm there is often helpful. And then we have an, a closing ceremony on the last morning. Wow. And how many days on average are your retreats? Those retreats are a full five nights, uh, five and a half days, I think, or six nights, six and a half days. I forget. <laughs> wow. Okay. So lo- a long time. Yeah. And then my shorter, my smaller groups, like at my house, um, that's four days. Uh, Mexico, I think, is five, five and a half. So they 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 vary. Okay, awesome. I'm curious. Okay, uh, I have a I have a bunch of follow up questions that I want to ask about all of that. Uh, first one with your hands on time at the retreat itself. What percentage of time are people either? on their own or with other retreat participants versus the percentage of time they're interacting with you or listening, learning from you? It really depends on the person. So when they get their schedule, there's certain things that are mandatory and those are in bold. So their small groups are mandatory and the evening council is mandatory. That's it. So so I get a lot of alums. I get about 50% alums come back. So they may not want to come and hear my same craft talk, right? I, I tweak them. I add new ones. But I repeat stuff every year for sure. And you need to, right? You need to if you're doing that kind of teaching. It's too much to design a new event every year from scratch. So they'll might skip every afternoon and write on their own. So they might end up with a lot of time by themselves. Um, I do ask people during writing time not to go to town. Not, and we are in silence. So that is concentrated, uh, dedicated time. But, but again, we're in silence unless they come and speak to me. So it really depends. And somebody else might come to everything. I had a gal last year, and that was her intention. I'm going to try everything. So she came to every class, um, every yoga class, every dance morning. <laughs> um, so it really depends. Okay, awesome. Well, that makes me wonder then, when you're thinking about the value proposition, the real value of of what you're selling with these retreats and what you're creating with these retreats, is it access to you or is it the space that you are creating? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that the real value is the space I create, and I've been learning to value that more and more. But... For for some people, I think it's being uh, it's access to me. Yeah, I think it really depends on the person because some people come they don't even know me, which I'm always like so surprised. You gotta be kidding me! You just gave me three thousand dollars and you don't even know me. I would never do that. Um, but other people, of course, have known me for years and years, or read me for years and years, or watched my videos. Um, so it really depends on the person. I also think I have this. I have a particular intensity in person. So I think maybe more people come for access to me, but then they're actually afraid to get access to me. (laughs) So they kind of hang around the corner or they hang around the edge and, and then occasionally they'll dart in and ask a question or sit next to me at a meal. Um, I've also learned over the years, and this is, this is not an issue for some people, but it's a huge issue for me. I am not comfortable, interested, and in fact, it makes me physically ill um, to be a guru, to attract projections. I don't want to be the center. So I have built retreats in which the community and the space is the center. And sometimes I do it so well that I'm like, oh, wait, maybe I got a little too invisible there. 
but I feel like it's my spiritual and psychological um, imperative and, and responsibility to do that. But that's because I have an extremely um, dicey relationship with anybody who tells me what to do or who, want, or, or who purports to know something secret. Yes. I am so glad that you shared that and that uh, hopefully people listening are really uh, thinking on that right now, because I think that in our advice culture, in our guru culture, it is very easy to think that the way you create value is just by creating opportunities for varying levels of access to you. And that can certainly be one way that you create value, but there is a huge opportunity to create other ways. And I think what you're describing right now is something that a lot more people could be taking advantage of and could be using to actually create more transformative experiences that require less of them personally and are more sustainable for the long haul. Yeah. I just want to say one more thing or two more things about that. So this really interesting edge for me. So one thing that, that, that I just all said leads me to do though, is undervalue access to me. So in this year, 2019, for the first time, I'm doing this, a a three-tiered private group with tiered access to me and how much reading time you get from me and how much coaching. And it really has taken me months to get comfortable with that. But because I'm so anti-guru, I've almost, I've gone too far the other way, not valuing what I do know, what valuing my energy, love, knowledge, attention is worth. And then on the other hand, not valuing myself, even though I would create these spaces, I would, I would have this tendency to over-provide, overwork, offer too much and overwhelm people. So you've got to kind of hold them all and really think about what are my own beliefs and stories that might be creating, that might be, they will be creating noise in the system about how you're designing things. Mm. Um, yes, I can feel you on the undervaluing access. <laughs> Do you- it's not not about getting puffed up and like I'm so special and 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 you have it's not that guru thing it's not that secret crap that we've seen people make millions of dollars off of I mean if I could do it I'd be a lot richer than I am I physically can't do it but that doesn't mean I have to pretend I don't I'm not anybody I don't know anybody I have a million copies of my books in print right I am 56 years old. I have been doing this stuff for a long ass time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's, um, let's go a little bit further into this. Cause another question that came to me while you were describing the way that you structure things and what the agenda actually looks like is how do you take care of yourself at a retreat? Um, I know for me, leading a retreat is thrilling and also exhausting. And so over the years, I've developed systems that I personally use to keep up my energy. What do those systems look like for you? Well, my newest secret weapon is bringing my husband with me. (laughs) Ah. Oh, that's one of my secret weapons too. (laughs) Huge. Like I never, so my first husband and I had like, we like, we, we talked, we'd say we had parallel play. Like we just weren't in each other's lives a lot. And this one, the keeper, he is like, man, I want to go with you everywhere. I want to support you. I want to take care of you. And so for the, so twice last year, I let him do it. And it was so huge. So he'll go to Mexico with me uh, in a week and he will actually help. He'll make it up and make coffee. He went to Taos with me this last year. Somebody got um, some heart issues or thought they had heart issues. He took her to the emergency room. 
but he's there every night and he hugs me and he gets up early in the morning and makes me coffee so I can have coffee in bed. So that is huge. Then the second thing is, is really working on my, um, my design so that I have space and time for myself. And, and really this is so embarrassing over 18 years of doing this that like, it's okay not to be on and with people all the time. So in Taos, I stay away from the group a little bit in a little house, just, you know, uh, 200 yards away or something. I don't know. Um, in Mexico, the same thing, just a little bit, you know, a little bit separate, um, but really just allowing myself like, yeah, it's all right that I'm taking a long shower. Yes. Okay. They don't need me all the time. And I'm coaching myself around that. Um, having the day or two off when I get back. So I don't have any coaching calls. I don't have any assignments due. I don't have anybody's stuff to read. And um, letting, this is a silly one, but I'm a big reader. So I let myself read whatever I want when I'm on retreat. So if I want to read a fantasy novel, I can. Um, if I want to read the news, I can. And um, I, sometimes I have a lot of things I need to read, you know, especially when I'm, I'm working on a book right now. And let's see what else I do. Um, really, I always set intentions. Um, it may be no sugar. It may be no sugar for the first four days of a retreat. Sugar and I aren't great friends. It tends to make me more tired over time. So it might be some things like that, how much I'll run, um, if I'll run at all. So I was in Taos in October. The sun doesn't come up early enough to go for a morning run. So I intentionally said, you will not run while you're here. It's okay. I'm letting myself off the hook for that. Got it. I love all of those strategies. Um, all right, let's talk about marketing and sales because I can't hold myself back any longer. Uh, you mentioned that you start planning a year or two in advance. How long before a retreat do you start marketing and selling? At least six to eight months. Okay. So Mexico, uh, which we won't be going back to next year, is, um, you know, we started in uh, probably August which was a hard sell, even though it sold out pretty quick because it's hot and you're like, I don't care where I'll be in January. Um, then everything else would open in mid-November. And so the that would be April, July, uh, September, October. Okay. So I wondered about that. You're kind of selling retreats as an idea as a whole. And like, these are your options as opposed to selling them as individual products. Right. We've tried both. And what we've noticed is saying, hey, this is these are the lineups for this year. Apply, grab your spot. They will sell out. Allows the people, this big kind of group of people who come almost every year or come repeatedly to go, well, who do I want to go with? Like there's some people who are like, oh man, the October retreat, more alums go to because it's sort of an advanced retreat. I don't want to be with everybody because then I talk more than I want. I want time by myself. So I'm going to go in April or some other people are just like, I know I have to have a retreat. I know I have to budget it. I want to know what all my options are. So I'm really serving my core group by doing that. But I, you know, we, it seems to work, um, just as well as doing them one at a time. And that just created more issues with people going, but, but what are the other ones? And I need to know. And, and then, so then those people also want to know about the mastermind and that's a little trickier because I'm just not ready to reveal that yet. So they may be like, shit, I wish I would have done the mastermind. And I'm like, you can do that and retreat. And some people do. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I love that. It, in, yeah. As a consumer, it feels more flexible. As a business owner, it feels like it's more flexible. Um, yeah. I, I really love that idea. 
um, what does your process actually look like then for marketing and selling? Are you doing something that looks more like a capital L launch? Are you doing something that's more just a casual enrollment period, an announcement? What does that look like? Well, what we found when we only did two retreats a year is they sold out so fast, people got really, really pissed. So what we did was we started an alum early enrollment. So they get two days or three days before everybody else, sometimes a week, just depends what else is going on in our schedule. And then we're like, hey, here's the date that it opens up to everybody else. So if you want a spot, you know, we're giving you more time so you don't have to freak. Because we would literally have people calling each other and going, enrollment's about to open. Refresh your browser, refresh your browser. (laughs) And I'm like, that's crazy. That's crazy. So we A, we opened more retreats. And B, we said, you know, hey, you've got time. Don't worry. Then we have a retreat interest list which is much, much smaller than my main list. And we occasionally advertise it. We advertise it a lot before the, the launch of the, the opening of these retreats, I should say more accurately. And then that, we, we remind the alums are about to open it to the retreat. So if they've been, you know, not noticing my emails, they take action. Then the retreat interest list opens, that fills a certain amount of spots. We'll send another email to them and say, hey, we just want you to know the Colorado sold out, but there's, there's Taos July, you know, whatever's happening. Then we usually let it go for a little bit. We put it live on our page after all of that. And then we'll usually just see rolling enrollments coming in for the rest. Because we haven't filled all of the the, the two Taos retreats as we have in the past, although I would say in the past it's usually been by the end of January, and it is not the end of January yet, and the past only being last year since I offered more retreats, then what we're going to do, what I'm going to do next to market is I'm doing a series of short Zoom Uh, video interviews with my raving fans. And we're going to put those in social media. And then we'll do some PSs in my newsletter. I'll probably write something about retreats. I will promote the hack out of this podcast. And hopefully that will fill the rest of them. And if not, I'll probably have to send a solo email to my big list of which I did do. I did do a solo email to my big list um, somewhere in there. All right. That sounds all very manageable for making as much money as you do from that. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, we've, we've built it up over the years and we've built it up yeah. from, from mistakes, from trial and error, from doing things too hard, but I've never had to do a launch launch with them. I love that. All right. One more question before we start to wrap things up here. Um, you've mentioned your team a couple of times. What role does your team play in the planning process, in the actual agenda process for each retreat? Nothing in the agenda. I could, and I'm trying to rely on, so I have, I have one main person who um, I meet with usually every week. She's my main contact. Then we have four people under her that she mostly works with that do different things, you know, in the whole business. And then I have an accountant. Um, And then there's also a web person on that team that I probably forgot. And so she's my main person. And her job is always to help me be looking for my blind spots. And so for instance, this is silly, but I've said lots of silly things already. I have such a hard time with the retreat gifts. I am not a shopper. I am a total minimalist but I'm also like a snob who likes good design. And I'm also this environmentalist who cannot stand waste. So buying gifts is so hard, but you want stuff for people. It makes them happy. So that is probably the thing that's hardest for me. And I need to try to rely on um, my team more for that. Otherwise they handle everything that has to do with details or dates. I'm pretty dyslexic. So if there is a date or a number that I can screw up, I will. So they take over getting all the rooms, 
figured out. They take over all the food restrictions and, and communicating those, making sure that, that all the emails are going out on a regular basis to remind people, um, that kind of stuff. So they're super about the technical, the logistics, the numbers, and I'm all about the creative. And then I'm over here going, oh my God, what should I give them for a gift? <laughs> Uh, this year I will be giving journals, pens, and I think candles. Ooh, spoilers. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jen, this has been incredibly helpful to me personally, and I hope that it's been really helpful uh, to folks listening as well. Now, we're recording this in early January here at the beginning of a, of a new year. What are you most excited about for 2019? Is there something that you're working on? Uh, you mentioned a new book. Just tell us what's kind of what's next for you, what's coming up. I'm super excited about the new book. I have had um, 11 years of books not working, and that's a topic for a whole other podcast. But this book is working, I think. And um, so, but I'm very, very cautiously grounded, excited about it. Um, so that's big, and that's probably where like my heart beats fastest. The other thing I'm really excited about is what I touched on earlier, which is really embracing what I'm, um, I don't want to say what I'm worth because that, that kind of bullshit conversation we all used to get caught up in. I'm worth whatever I want to charge, you know, but like really going, what, what price for more contact with me? What form is that going to take? And, and the, the plan is pretty darn good for 2019. So I'm excited to see if it works. I'm excited to see how I feel about delivering it. Um, and I'm excited. I'm really excited to be a stand for this book in 2020. I'm not going to go look for a publisher. I'm going to self-publish it myself. I've been published by the big five. I've been published by um, the big small presses. Um, I guess because I couldn't call them small presses. And um, this is huge for me to say, I'm going to really be the architect of this all the way through, but it, it feels super important. Mm, I love it. Jen Loudon, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing the inside of your business. Um, and uh, yeah, I just really appreciate everything that you've shared today. Oh, I love this conversation. You're a great interviewer. Thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening. Find out more about Jennifer Loudon and discover her upcoming retreats at jenniferloudon.com. This episode was produced by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt. Our theme music is by The Shrugs. Hear from more small business owners who share what's working for them at whatworkspodcast.com. <laughs>